0: Welcome to IMPACT, a podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. IMPACT features interviews with gifted Bible teachers who will help you gain a greater understanding of Scripture so that it has a greater impact on your life. The host of IMPACT is Mark Genstead, the Staff Minister for Nurture at St. Andrew.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. Welcome to this podcast. I'd like to say that this time that you're spending with God and His Word is time well spent. Some of you may be listening for the first time. I'd like to welcome you to this podcast ministry and invite you to continue to listen. And others of you are back for more, and I appreciate you being here and being faithfully devoted to God and His Word. And uh, we have another terrific guest today. In fact, he's been here before, Dr. Mark Pauschin from Martin Luther College. Welcome back to IMPACT.
2: Yeah, thank you, Mark. Great to be with you again. Great to be at it again. Mark and Mark. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Great name, by the way. (laughs) It's a great name. Let's face it. Uh, Let's begin with
1: prayer, then we'll jump into Isaiah chapter 40 with Dr. Paustian. Dear Good Shepherd, be with us as we read and discuss the words from your prophet Isaiah. Help us cherish old truths and learn new truths to cherish from your precious word. Fill us with hope, strengthen our faith, and send us out to do your will. Amen. Amen. So it's good to have you back again today. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to sit across the table from you and uh, get insight from you today from Isaiah chapter 40. Before we go there, can you give us just a little bit about Mark Paustian? Tell us about your family.
2: <laughs> oh, um, yeah. I'm married to Connie Kroll. It's been hmm, 31 years I think. (laughs) Flies by, doesn't it? It flies by. She's a wonderful person and just an amazing companion. And she works on campus? She does. She's a receptionist, and so we have a date for chapel most days and get to see her all the time. And we've got two daughters and two sons-in-law. And uh, no grandchildren yet. I just turned 60, so I'm kind of looking for that day, too. But uh, we're a very happy family. Very, very blessed. Always glad to be in the same place. Very good. Six of us, yeah. And I've seen that last
1: name around the Senate a little bit? you have family that are in the ministry?
2: Yeah, I have a brother who just retired from West Bend, Wisconsin. I'm a brother who just retired from Upper Michigan. Um, the generation before, there were plenty of uncles and my dad and grandpa, and I'm fourth generation. So Was then, your dad a pastor? He was, yeah. And grandpa? And grandpa, and then his father-in-law, too. So I can kind of say four generations. Chip off the old block. <laughs> well, it was the family culture I grew up in without any question.
1: Very good. Yeah. What a blessing, right? Definitely. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40 is our focus today. Before we get into the specifics of that chapter, can you tell us uh, about uh, the prophecy of Isaiah? Uh, just give us a little background on on him and, and his prophecy.
2: Sure. So Isaiah is a prophet of the southern kingdom, so you know, with Solomon's son the kingdom is divided. Judah down south with Jerusalem and Israel up north. So Isaiah is a prophet to the, to the southern kingdom, but he prophesied the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria. So he prophesied that and he lived through all that. Um, Assyria also devastated Judah, but Jerusalem was spared by divine intervention. Just like another story of its own, how Jerusalem was spared. And so Isaiah, that was his day. He... Uh, He finished his work as a prophet about 100 years or at least 100 years before the Babylonian captivity of the south. So what's interesting is that he prophesied that the southern kingdom too would be carried off in captivity, and it would be at the hands of Babylon. And when Isaiah said that, Babylon was really nothing. It wasn't any kind of world power at all, no threat at all. Um, But what happens then is... so. That day does come long after Isaiah prophesied. Uh, Jerusalem falls and a captivity happens. And then we get to what we call book two of Isaiah. So it's Isaiah chapter 40 to the end, 40 to 66. And this is a book of comfort. It's like the Old Testament evangelist or gospel almost because it's as if Isaiah is standing in Babylon among the people toward the end of the captivity, so now it's closer to 200 years after Isaiah's life, it's like he's standing there, and all of a sudden out comes this prophecy, comfort, comfort my people, um, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her hard service has been accomplished, her sin is paid for, it, and she'll receive from the from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. So someone has called that these three deep breaths that Isaiah takes, because those three things he just said are the rest of the book. So the first part of Book 2 is going to be about the return from Babylon, so your hard service is accomplished. The second part of Book 2 is going to be about, about redemption and atonement by the Messiah, and so your sin has been paid for. And the third part of Isaiah Book 2 is going to be about the new heavens and the, and the new earth receiving double from God, uh, double blessing and richness for all that um, they had suffered. So one more point about that. Um so Isaiah Book Two, again, this is Isaiah forty to sixty-six, just really crazy. It's as, as if Isaiah is living in the future almost. It has those three parts, and each part has three parts in it. it. Happens to be that the middle of the middle is I could have you guess it's he was wounded for our transgressions, <laughs> he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So the whole thing revolves around the suffering of the Messiah. In, case where, in a case where it's almost like this time Isaiah is standing at the foot of the cross as he sees that. So the whole thing revolves around Jesus, like Revelation calls Christ the soul of prophecy. It's really all about him. So this is a flat-out marvelous book. And Isaiah chapter 40 just sort of has everything in terms of comforts and assurances built into it. So okay. there's some background.
1: Very good. So um, a lot there. I guess what I'll pick up on is just to make sure I have this. The second book, of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66. Correct. And right in the middle of that, if I do quick math, <laughs> is 53. Yep. And that's what you're talking about.
2: It's Isaiah in the, 53. Yep, it's in the middle structurally, in a way. And there are lots of really fascinating examples of the Hebrew writers centering something that's thematic and is the largest thing on their mind. And so um, it's not a sort of a random thing to notice that. It's actually quite could be quite significant.
1: Dr. Brug has pointed that out to me a time or two when we've discussed with him on Impact the Psalms. Of course. He says the same thing about that. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 40. uh, Well, you you already said the first verse. I'll I'll read that, and then I'd I'd like to have you comment on this repetition that we hear. He uses that word twice, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. What's the significance of saying that opening word twice?
2: Well, naturally, it's emphatic. I mean, that's the first thing you'd say is something not to be missed. Hebrew is very repetitious, repetitious for that very reason. If you just think into it from both sides, it could be, well, the need for comfort must be especially urgent because of these people's circumstances. So they really need this comfort. And the other way to kind of feel the meaning here, I think, is you also get the warmth and eagerness of, of the Lord to offer the comfort. And so both sides are kind of there. And this is just one of the most beloved verses in the Old Testament. Um, it kind of is the whole impulse for the, for preaching the gospel, right? So throughout time, to the end of the age, um, wherever you are in your ministry, you're standing in a pulpit or in a classroom, you're standing in a... Nursing home, or funeral home, or whatever it might be, this is the impulse. The Lord's saying, "Comfort my people, comfort, comfort my people," and that's to all your listeners, whether they're public ministers or have their personal ministry of the Word of God. This is this is the great imperative, right? To stand up before people wherever you are and comfort, comfort my people. It really stands out for that reason, as. Signaling a whole different part of Isaiah's prophecy, which we call book two again.
1: And the people of his day, from what do they need comfort?
2: Yeah. A little context, maybe. I've often thought you can't overstate the importance of the event when you're talking about the fall of Jerusalem. So it's to say that there are two devastating events in scripture. Both are written up four times in excruciating detail. And one is the fall of Jerusalem, written four times in the Old Testament. And you can't overstate how devastating, because this is the place where God most revealed his grace and his covenant. And to have him wipe it off the face of the earth had to leave people saying, so it's over? I mean, it's just over? Um, Ezekiel is in the captivity, and there's this time in his ministry with, with the captives where he is continuing to show them their sin and speak about judgment. But then the word comes from Jerusalem that the city has fallen. And it's just so devastating that Ezekiel's message too becomes one of comfort. It changes his whole tone. And so they are living in hard circumstances. And um, I think that when we are struggling. We can have our minds be kind of bound up in the law and our mind might go right to, well, God is punishing me. Like, maybe it is kind of all over if um, if he would go to this length. I had a pastor, a dear friend of mine, who's been absolving people and forgiving them, you know, for as long as I have, you know, 35 years almost now. And he said his son got really sick and his first thought was God is punishing me, right? I mean, so even someone that knows the gospel that well has to so to speak, reclaim it in that moment and remember it and apply it to himself. And so that first event is just unspeakably devastating. Well, the other event written up four times in excruciating detail, of course, is Christ on the cross. And there's a link there, right? Destroy this temple, Jesus says, and I'll raise it up. And so flat out devastating to those that loved him and worshiped at his feet but of course an even greater and more profound comfort comes from from um, the death of jesus and his resurrection so i just think it's what goes what's on a person's mind who has struggled and the years roll on 50 60 coming on 70 years that the comfort they need to know that god is still their god he is still their tender father and he well, the, the the favorite verse of so many of us comes in here then. Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. And the plan is, the very next verse say you're going to seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So the plan is, God is like saying, if I have to wipe Jerusalem off the face of the earth, if that's what it takes to get you looking in my direction, seeking me with all your heart, where I can make sure you'll find me by the message of the gospel, then I'll do that because no cost is too high. And so that's the very, very rich context of that verse. I know the plans I have for you. Do you want to push back on that or question if I can make it come up more clearly what I'm trying to say? I guess just a
1: thought. Uh, Comfort, as we consider God's people today, we need comfort. And we need comfort from things that happen in life. And we also need comfort from God's law. Both require comfort from God, don't they?
2: Yeah. If you don't, on some level, awaken me up to my need for God's mercy, then the gospel itself kind of has its nerve cut. So I do need to continually come back to my need for the grace of God, which is apparent every day, that the gospel might remain that life-altering thing that keeps us alive to God. So you're very correct, there's a kind of paradoxical comfort, I guess. It comes from receiving a steady diet of both law and gospel. But the gospel is the last word, right? The gospel is the defining word. Um, In fact, where the text says speak tenderly to Jerusalem, the literal Hebrew is actually speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Um, For years, I've taught communication, and I have a whole hour on the notion that encouragement is when we manage to speak to the fears that someone else is hiding inside. If there's ever a time our words become disproportionately powerful and take to the grave influential, it often has that quality. Uh, We we manage to speak words that really address the fear someone's hiding in their heart. Well, that's Isaiah 40 and also Ruth 2 are sort of the Scriptural warrant for thinking that way because the literal thing says that very thing. Speak to the heart of the city um, and offer words of comfort is the imperative.
1: I want to read verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What is Isaiah getting at with that phrase, that she has received double for all of her sins?
2: Sure. Um, Let me back up one second and explain how she has received. So the Hebrew language has a verb tense. It's very common. It usually is going to be rendered in the past tense. That's what it usually does in English. But the tense of the verb actually means that something is complete in the speaker's mind. And so every now and then we can use this tense to actually talk about the distant future. And we call that the prophetic perfect. And the meaning of it is that this thing that God is saying now is as good as done. If God says it, it will be because it's complete in his mind. For, for the Lord speaking and acting are not so different from each other. And so we get a lot of this in Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. It's the same thing. It's using that tends to say um, nothing can stop this from happening because in God's mind it is as good as done. So that's explained that part, which could be puzzling. About the issue of double, um, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. It is poetry in Hebrew, so there is a bit of needing to kind of Intuit what's being said. It seems to be saying like a double compensation for all her misery. Like whatever that amount was, it'll be twice that for the goodness and glory God plans to, to spend on Israel. I think of it like, let's say a father has, has spanked his little boys, right? Well, his heart wasn't really in it. He does it for their good, as you were saying before. But then when he embraces them after and pulls him to his chest. Now his heart's in it in a whole different way. So it's like a double uh, double response to the punishment that came first. Um, I say that because when Jeremiah talks about the fall, there actually is a phrase in Hebrew that says, okay, the, the city came down, the walls came down, but the Hebrew says, not from my heart. <laughs> okay, The Lord says, not from my heart. And then when he restores the city, then we get the phrase, from my heart. So what Isaiah has on this regard is that God's judgment is a, is a strange work. It's an alien task. There's something about it that the God who from all eternity was nothing but love within himself and the persons of the Trinity, this is in some way strange to him that he would have to judge. Now he does it for the best of reasons and so on, but that preponderance of mercy That the main way God describes himself is, well, it's Jesus. I am gentle and humble of heart. That's describing who he really is to his core. And so I like that notion of a father spanks because he must, but the embracing is times two, you know, that comes after. So very, very comforting. You know, a little bit more context might be who we're talking to here. So when Jeremiah prophesied, another prophet, of course, right before the end, He told the people who would listen to him, who were the 11th hour converts and were the remnant, he said, you should go to Babylon. Just go to Babylon. Um, The the evil kings of Israel said, whatever Jeremiah says, we'll do the opposite. We'll flee to Egypt and stuff. But Jeremiah says, no, no, no. Go to Babylon because it'll be good for you there. God will watch over you and he'll bring you back. And so among all the masses that went off to Babylon in captivity, among them is that faithful remnant who suffered under the, I suppose, the chast- chastisement of God with the nation, even though they themselves were repentant. So think how this lands on their hearts. Comfort, comfort my people. You know, that, that they remained his people by repentant faith. So the audience is a little bit complicated. They're not all kind of in lockstep, but there is for sure that, re- that smaller remnant of the faithful.
1: Verse 3, we think of John the Baptist. This is in all four Gospels, Mm -hmm. referring to John the Baptist. Here's the verse, folks, Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It continues to say, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. So that's quoted in all four Gospels. Looking ahead to the ministry of John the Baptist, what was the comfort that John the Baptist brought to the people of his day?
2: Well, it essentially would be the same Gospel. It would be the same grace. Um, You think about it this way with prophecy. that, So when Babylon comes back from captivity, this is crazy. This is unprecedented to go off in captivity and ever come back. So it's an amazing event. But when that actually happens... The question is, does it live up to everything that the prophets had spoken about? It lives up to most of it, but there's always more there that wasn't quite fulfilled yet. And so what that means is that when the return happens, it itself becomes a promise of the next good thing coming. And so there we find ourselves suddenly, as you said in the day of John the Baptist, um, the great forerunner of Christ himself, it's the same gospel, it's the same grace. In fact, John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's not so different. And especially he says about Jesus, um, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Same message. Your sin has been paid for, or it will be, with another prophetic perfect. So, um, yeah. So we search out possible fulfillments. And we can go from the return from captivity to Christ himself, the Messiah. Sometimes we go beyond that to the New Testament church and see often spiritual blessings are given to us in really concrete terms. And anything not fulfilled in those ways, well, we have the new heaven and the new earth, often a flat-out literal grand fulfillment of anything left over from these prophecies. And so the prophets often do this. We can move from one to the next in a very seamless way. Now we're talking about Babylon. Now we're talking about Jesus. Now we're talking about the end times. And so prophecy is not the easiest thing, but within those possibilities, we can often settle on a meaning that really does fit um, what the verses are saying.
1: I want to go back to verse two for a moment. You said, where it says, speak tenderly, I want to make a connection with uh, John the Baptist because recently I was looking at uh, the song of Zechariah and towards the, the father of John the Baptist and towards the end of the song of Zechariah he talks about how his son will tell the people about the tender mercies of our God and I was struck by that phrase the tender mercies of our God as I looked into it it, it talked about how what that is really saying is when you when you get to the very core of who God is he is a God of mercy. And that, isn't that what you said about yeah. that verse, speak tenderly? And exactly. And that's what John the Baptist's father said about, about what John would say about God.
2: Yeah, exactly. So this is the one who may need to punish the sins of the fathers to the third generation, not just randomly, but to those who hate him too, just like their dads did. But then showing mercy to a thousand generations. Compare that to three So this is the preponderance of mercy in the heart of God. And uh, tender mercy is just a lovely expression. And that's a wonderful connection you've made.
1: And here's verse 5 of Isaiah 40. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it. So has verse 5 been fulfilled? Has the glory of the Lord been revealed?
2: Well, it's another example of, okay, so I'm going to search in my mind possible fulfillments, So I could say when they returned from Babylon, it was such a historic event, we said before, unprecedented, that did thousands see this and know about it, and it lifted their eyes to how wonderful the God of Israel is. That's what glory is, right? Moving past that fulfillment, then comes Christ. How many people know about his death and resurrection, the day he was lifted up for us all, and the day he conquered death for us, right? So millions even into the billions have seen that. Everybody? No, no. Um, and so moving beyond the church age, there is the ultimate fulfillment. And you can sort of take your pick where you like based on the specific words, but there is a day coming when not a soul will miss seeing the glory of God, either for there great terror or for their great comfort. But so ultimately, it is a favorite word of Isaiah. The Hebrew is yachtav, together. So all flesh together will see. And you can just think through the possibilities based on those categories of return and Christ and the church age and the end of all time.
1: Every knee shall bow.
2: Every knee shall bow.
1: Verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures Forever. What a great verse. Yes. What's, let's use that word comfort. What's the comfort in verse 8?
2: Well, I'm glad that you caught the precise wording, which is the word of our God. Once you say the word of our God, we are talking about a word of gospel, right? Um, Luther said, some little quote by Luther is, The devil mocks me that the gospel could be held in so few words. And he's referring to um, my people in verse 1 and 2 and your God. So the word my and your is the gospel in just a couple of words. In fact, the word my people is a single letter in the Hebrew language that turns people into my people. And so the idea is that the word of our God has to be signaling to us that this is not just any word, but the word of grace from the God who owns us and the God who is ours. And so if there is a word of grace that goes on forever, if there's a word of word and promise of love that goes on forever, so will the objects of that love go on forever. Um, And so profound comfort about a love that can't end, can't be extinguished. And um, that's what I see in that phrase.
1: Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. So Zion and Jerusalem are addressed and they are told to lift their voice and shout the good news. To whom?
2: Okay, I have a dilemma here, Mark.
1: <laughs> Did I ask a bad question? No,
2: not at all. I wanted to not skip over um, the all flesh is grass. All flesh are grass. Yeah, let's go back. Is that then, okay? And then we'll get to verse 9. <laughs> okay. If We've problems, got time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I was reading a wonderful commentary on Isaiah Book 2 by one of our fathers, um, August Pieper. So I'm going to rely on him a little bit. The notion is that Isaiah really despairs of his people. There is hope, but it isn't going to come from his people because all flesh is grass, is what he's saying. right? So the nations out there can't stop it. Israel won't be any help, and this is just something God will do. So what Pieper says about this phrase, all flesh is grass, he's saying every human being must have some experience of this in his own heart that all flesh is grass, meaning all humanity. It is the nothingness and impotence of our human race apart from God. The flowers fall and the flowers fade. This is all of the best that humanity can produce, all the best of human achievements. The Lord breathes on them, and they come to nothing. Human excellence cannot last. Um, And so a peeper says, here's the phrase, um, all who would understand Scripture and Christ, they can be comprehended in no other way but to also know this— that all flesh is grass. And so it makes sense that when Peter uses this section, he's, he's saying, we must be born again, but not of corruptible seed, because all flesh is grass. We need to be born again of the living and, en- and enduring Word of God that we've already been talking about that lasts forever. So it's a kind of a wonderful reference. And this is preview to maybe what our next episode will be, getting through to the end of Isaiah. But the preview is that really the image of the grass, all flesh is grass, is contrasted by a very different image of the eagle eagles at the end of the chapter.
1: Very good. And we'll get to that at the end. We'll get to that eventually. End of next week. Let's continue then now. Verse nine. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So I read verse nine. Folks, if you're not able to have Isaiah 40 open as we go through this and as you listen to this, please take time to read this entire chapter. Here again, verse nine. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. So here's the question again. Zion and Jerusalem are addressed, and they are told to lift up their voice, shout the good news. Who are they to share this news with?
2: Sure. So a little bit to unpack, maybe to get at that, why there's a couple possibilities. The reason is that Zion and Jerusalem can be terms of endearment. They have connotations, often Zion um, refers to God's timeless people, eventually. It can have a sense of the beloved, if there's any one sort of meaning beneath it. Jerusalem can have, as a term of endearment, the sense of the people among which God intends to dwell. So it could be one possibility, I haven't thought totally deeply into this, but that he's addressing the people of God there in Babylon, and that... The Lord is coming from his homeland. He's crossing that wilderness to come to get them and to take them home. So shout for joy, Jerusalem and Zion, referring to those people. Could also be that he's addressing the ruins back in Israel, the ruined city and the the uh, ragtag mob. There was just the poorest of the poor left behind that he's telling them. It could be that... Look up to the hills because he's coming. He's coming back. And he has look, He has the people with him. All the people that we lost, they're coming back with him. And so there the sense would be that, well, with both interpretations, that the people look ahead with despair out of their struggle. Um, the judgment that they endured with the captivity seemed final. But we're saying here the news is good. The news is good. And that is not too good to be true. So don't be timid about it. Shout. Shout it. Um, one last little background thing is the name, the word for good news, the background meaning of the word is is to smooth out your face. So you can imagine a face that's kind of contorted in, in anxiety and the the fraud burrow and all of that, the furrowed bro, brow, I should say. Imagine a, a news so good and so astounding that it smooths out your face and and erases all the wrinkles of worry and stuff. So a very picturesque word behind the good news thing. But one way or another, whoever he's addressing, it doesn't end with those two possibilities because, again, Isaiah's prophecy rolls beyond the day of Babylon into the day of Christ when sin is atoned for and all the way through church time and all the way to the end. So finally, it's addressing all God's people everywhere, whoever have ears to hear in faith, this this good news, and that they too need not be timid about it. It's not too good to be true, though it may sound like that.
1: in general, the message of Isaiah as as we hear it, um, the the images, the beautiful images of of the gospel that we just so love from the pen of Isaiah, uh, does that come through just as clear in Hebrew as it does in English?
2: I believe it does for the most part. And I love the imagery as well. I, think, I just think we're called to kind of linger in it. And you just can't ever say the last word about an image like those that are in front of us. I think they translate pretty well. In fact, there's something that's been called an archetypal metaphor is an image that just transcends culture. So everybody knows light and everybody knows darkness. Everybody knows high Everybody, I don't care who you are, knows what low is, and hunger and fullness, and these just transcend. And so the images here are just so accessible. Drass that's dried up, and eagles that soar, and shepherds that watch their sheep, and, and so on. So I'd say the answer is yes. We can read our English Bibles and just be completely satisfied that we're receiving the full Word of God from them.
1: I want to look at verse uh, 10 and 11 together. Verse 10 says, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. And then verse 11 says, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads them. What about that contrast
2: between those verses? It's just what Isaiah is good for. (laughs) He's good at this. Um, He just catches your attention. Um, I was thinking that Psalm 23 has the same thing, sort of a juxtaposition of images. First, it's the shepherd, um, and I will, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I will lack nothing, right? And the connotation really is one of not only tenderness, but also competence. He is well able to see to all that the sheep need and all the lambs need, even to letting the lambs lie down, which they don't do, unless there's total security, right? Lambs are very skittish. And so the first part is all about the shepherd, kind of pastoral imagery. But then Psalm 23 too 2 suddenly moves into the court of the king. And suddenly it's about my my cup is an overflow. He, he sets a table before my enemies and so on. So very similar. You just gain so much from the images kind of coming together. One is the warrior God who, who defeats the enemies and Babylon is nothing before him. Suddenly it's the tender shepherd who carries the lambs who aren't big enough to walk yet. And and it's just you can, again, linger over these things all day long. So I appreciate the question.
1: I think we're going to uh, stop here today, and we'll come back if you're willing to come back next week. And of we'll course, continue on with <laughs> Isaiah chapter forty. Lots and lots of good stuff to get to.
2: Thank you. So we'll
1: do that next Look week. To Thanks it. for being here today, and folks, uh, thank you for listening, and God be with you.
0: Thank you for listening to Impact, a ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. If you have a question or feedback to share, send an email to impact at saint-andrew-online.org. Please tell your friends and family about Impact and keep this ministry in your prayers. Impact is new every Monday and all past episodes are available. The greater you understand scripture, the greater impact it will have on your life.